Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. Join me in studio this evening to make sense of all that's playing out in global markets is Nick Kunza from Bridge Stockbrokers. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Gareth Stobie. He is the MD of CoreShares to tell us about their brand new global offering. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Germany is a step closer to forming a new government. This comes after the country's Social Democrats voted to start formal coalition talks with Chancellor Angela Merkel's Conservatives. The move brings relief to Germany's two largest parties and European heads of state who have been holding off on important strategic decisions since the federal elections in September last year. Chinese tech giant Tencent and Google have reached a long-term agreement to cross-license a number of products and technologies. This is Google's first pact with Tencent as it tries to expand its offering in the Chinese market. Financial details of the deal have not been disclosed. And central bank watchers will tune into the latest monetary policy signals at the ECB and the Bank of Japan this week. The first PMI readings for 2018 will also be released, as well as key GDP data in the UK and the US. And of course, the World Economic Forum in Davos. Here's more. New year, new policy from the ECB. Such is the question for central bank watchers ahead of this week's first policy decision of 2018. Why, most ask, shouldn't it tighten when the Eurozone economy is reaching new highs and pushing bond yields and the euro higher with it? There is also a why not. I don't think the ECB will act precipitously. They are still looking for inflation. It really isn't there yet. That will require a number of things to happen, including the current strength of the currency to unwind. And a big question too this week over the Donald as he heads to Davos. His speech, the must-see, must-be-at event for the globalists at the World Economic Forum, keen to hear what Trump, the protectionist, will say. Last week, he made new threats to tear up the NAFTA trade pact. Its sixth round of renegotiation talks is also scheduled this week. We have no idea what President Trump uh, will, will say uh, on this, but uh, he said he will talk about uh, trade and about uh, buy America and America first. We want the US to, to engage. Trump may even speak around the same time as the US GDP release on Friday. Q4 could show a robust 3% rate, say economists. The UK's release on Friday too likely to show annual growth trending lower for Britain in a countdown to Brexit. We do remain in this slightly odd situation whereby we know the dates, we know that Brexit's going to happen, but we've yet to find out exactly what that's going to mean for individual sectors and indeed the economy as a whole. Also in the data diary, the year's first PMI readings for the US and the Eurozone and a policy meeting at the Bank of Japan amid questions there too over whether the year it'll tighten could be this one. Well, Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers in studio with me. So the Donald going to Davos um, uh, and you were saying off here it seems quite strange to have um, somebody like him who's a protectionist going to this great big talk fest. Uh, of course we do have the US government's in shutdown and if that's not solved by the end of the week do you think we'll still have Donald going to Davos? Stephen unlikely. I think unlikely. I mean, he's got uh, bigger fish to fry. Quite why he's going to Davos, which, as we said, off air is the is the the poster child for uh, open borders and capitalism. I'm not quite sure why. I mean, he's anything but a Davos a Davos man, as they call it. So um, I, I think if the U.S. is still shut, uh, the government is still shut by Friday. I think it's very unlikely. I mean, he's due, as your interest said, he's due to speak on Friday.
What's the implications of the US government shutdown? Because it looks like the markets aren't mm. paying much attention to it. They're not. It's been, I think, someone quoted, I think, the weekend FT, they said it's a yawn fest. You know, we've gone from last year with missiles being lobbed over Japan to uh, we've seen this death, this story before. Um, at the moment, sort of the weekend past three days in, there doesn't seem to be too much to bother the marketplace yet. Of course, things will be a little bit different because uh, a lot of the government agencies actually release some economic data, and I'm sure we're going to touch on US GDP later. But if the government's still shut, who is going to release those GDP numbers? Because they won't be released. So I think if this, if this becomes a bit more protracted and drags on a little bit longer, then I think it'll start to hurt. You'll start to see the dollar possibly slide off a little bit. And at the moment, bond yields are still quite strong, but you might find those will change. As, as time progresses. But, well, let's touch on those US GDP um, data because we had Chinese data mm. last week, which was, I think, slightly better than expected, and that's given a bit of a boost to markets and that's on commodities. Um, what are you expecting from the US? Well, I think, I mean, this, this year is all about, all about the synchronized global growth, that buzzword that everyone bounces around now. Yes, we had China out last week, 6.9%. They expected 68 uh, I see the IMF this morning, while, uh, this afternoon, while we're waiting to come on air, actually. They've sort of upgraded global growth to close on 3.2%. US GDP numbers, as we said, due at the end of the week looking for over 3% growth. So there's certainly, there's certainly growth. There's certainly growth in all facets and all corners of, of, of the global economy right now. And I guess that's what's been propelling these markets to all-time highs again today. Mm. I mean, you, you say synchronized global growth. Mm. Um, do you think countries like the UK will be out of step with that, given the, the concerns about Brexit? I think we had retail sales numbers out last week, which were disappointing. Yeah. And there is a lot of caution in that economy. I think I think the UK is a little bit of a, of a unique um, country at the moment. I mean, they are without a doubt. If there is a, a messy Brexit exit, if they can't negotiate their terms of exiting, it's going to be a problem. We've already seen the UK consumers suffering a little bit, as you said, on the retail side. Um, and also, it doesn't help the pound at at close to almost stage one forty to the dollar on cable. That's not helping. Um, if we had a, a much weaker sterling, we saw it closer to 125 six months ago, that would make life a lot easier. But right now, they're trying to uh, propose themselves as a service-driven economy, maybe getting sort of being the sort of a, a unique space in, in the Eurozone. Strong, strong sterling is not going to help them. A messy Brexit is not going to help them. So I think you're right. This might be a bit of a unique case with the, with the UK. We also have a strong euro at the moment. So what are the implications of that, particularly for inflation. Mm. So as the ECB prepares to meet, we have European growth doing very nicely at the moment, but inflation not coming to the party is still below target, and the stronger euro is not going to help that. It's not going to help that. And, and, and you keep hearing Drachi wheel out that same old story. We're going to remain accommodative as long as we need to be. They're talking about only exiting the, the quantitative easing program in late September, October. I mean, that, that is going to keep things suppressed for a while. The market's running ahead of itself, as, as you expect. They, we've seen what, the, what the, the European indexes have done. We've seen what the DAX has done. But funny enough, the last, the last week or two, as, as you've seen the euro strengthen again, certainly against the dollar as of recent, you find a lot of the German market has been, has been lagging a little bit. So I think it's starting to people to realize that actually a strong euro is not helping the cause right now. And of course, Germany has been the, the, the main engine of that European growth, and the strong euro is going to put its exports at a disadvantage. Exactly. And I, thi I think the, the, what we've got to watch out for now is, is, is you know, has the ECB lost control of the marketplace now? At the moment, the jawboning, Drachi's been doing what he's been doing for years. Everything has been under control. But you just get the sense now with... I mean, that, that, that 10-year note on, on Germany, I mean, that's gone from negative 0.4% to half a percent up. 
I mean, that's, that is a 100 basis point swing on a 10-year note. It's a huge move in a very short space of time. So I think the market's just beginning to question now, where is Drachi, where is the ECB? Are they in control of this transition as, as the world now moves possibly to exiting this giant QE program across the board? Mm, well, I think all will become clear later this week. Um, looking, though, to mm. U.S. Um, corporate reporting, and Netflix is coming out tonight. And I think these r results have really been much anticipated, particularly as an indication of what the other tech shares might be reporting back. Yeah, this is the big one. So, so <coughs> we're actually heading into now. So Netflix, Amazon, um, Alphabet, Google, all the parent companies, all the likes, they've really propelled this market higher and they've been the driving forces, the, the fangs as everyone's calling them at the moment. But if you look at just from the last 14, we've only been trading for 14 trading days so far of 2019. Some of these shares, Netflix is up 15%, uh, some of these shares are up close to 20% already, which is far outweighs the broader market, the S&P being up 5%, all time high. But these, these shares have really outperformed. So now the proof's in the pudding. Next to see if the earnings justify the, the, the strong run they've had. Because these stocks are, are a far away from being cheap. And in fact, some people would argue they're actually starting to look quite expensive now from a from straight earnings point of view. Uh, of course, N Netflix's um, drivers are very company specific mm. to Netflix. So can you extrapolate what Netflix reports onto, onto the rest of the tech sector? Well, Netflix is, it, it, it might be a little bit unique, Stephen. It's not, you, it's difficult to compare Netflix with the rest. What is interesting, though, is if you look at your straight PE ratios and, and, and your straight earnings per share basis, if you had to compare it with something like a Time Warner, which some people say falls into a similar space, they're going to start getting into streaming moves as well. They're trading on a PE of 18 or 19 times forward earnings. Netflix is trading on close to 90 times. So there's a lot of expectation, a lot of hope sort of baked into that price of that share. Would you be wary about investing in shares like this? Do the fangs still have teeth going into 2018? I think they're going to keep on driving things forward, but there's no doubt about it. It's starting to look a little bit lofty. Okay. So um, the banks, I think most of them have reported mm -hmm. now. And something that they all have in common is tax charges stemming from this new US, new US tax law that came in, I think, at the beginning of yeah. the year. Why are they all being hit with this tax? Is it one-off? And what's the implications for their taxes going forward? It is a one-off. And a lot, of, a lot of them have been using the opportunity to pay it back to shareholders. They've been giving out incentives to employees. They've been sort of giving a little bit of a kickback too. So they are passing it on. Um, what has been quite a common theme with, with these banks reporting recently, which is quite interesting, is, is the lack of volatility we've had. We've now seen it affecting these banks, the trading houses, the, the fixed income departments. They're all showing massive drawdowns in what profits are Okay, so it's bad for them. They need volatility. They need a lot of uh, need a lot of movement in the marketplace. The banks are battling with this with this low vol environment we're getting into, but the earnings are still beating. They've still been ratcheted. The, the, the expectations have been managed, but we might be finding we're getting into a little bit of a, a tougher period for these banks. A any of the U.S. banks you like? Um, I thought J.P. Morgan was outstanding. Um, I saw Wells Fargo was also pretty good. A little bit light coming in, but their retail base was growing hugely. The only disappointing one of the whole lot was Goldman Sachs, but you saw that the major majority of a trading house, and they're battling a little bit of this lack of It swung to a loss, didn't it? It did indeed, yeah. Uh, and Wells Fargo also hit with a one-off charge, and that was relating to their um, crooking the books. and C Correct. <laughs> one-off charges, and they've, been th they've literally come out of that, throwing the kitchen sink at it, and I think they're going to build off that base going forward. Okay, and the other story in the headline, Google signing a patent deal with mm. Tencent. Um, how do you see this? Is it positive for both companies? Um, how did they take this forward? Because surely they are competitors in some aspects. It's, it's an interesting one. There's very little detail that's come out of it. We don't know the sort of bottom line to the deal. But, I mean, two tech, gi uh, tech giants in that space, um, they're going to try to leverage off, I understand, that the financial services side of Tencent is very active. They're looking to leverage off that. And I think Google and, the, and their patent laws that they're moving towards that is only going to add value to it. 
And of course, China is a market that Alphabet would like to be present in. Big time, yeah. Okay, well, we're going to have a break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at the newly launched CoreShares Global Dividend Aristocrats ETF. That's with Gareth Stobie from CoreShares. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio is Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers. Joining the conversation is Gareth Stoby from CoreShares. Gareth, thanks very much for coming in. So you're you. telling us about the S&P Global Dividend Aristocrats ETF. It lists uh, next month, so the 22nd of February. Is that just a global version of your local dividend aristocrats? Yes, Stephen. I mean, the <coughs> take a step back. The Dividend Aristocrats brand is a brand that's owned by S&P Dow Jones Indices. So same people who put together the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500, um, have an index series called the Dividend Aristocrats. Um, and the index works the same way in different markets. In each market, the index tries to capture those shares in any market that have paid, maintained, and grown their dividend stream over long periods um, of time. Um, so in 2014, we listed the local version of that strategy in our home market. S and it's done really nicely in terms of capital flows and from a performance perspective. Um, and as we've looked to grow our product set, uh, it just simply makes sense to add on the global version of that because we have conviction around the investment thesis uh, in the first place. And that investment thesis um, has been successful globally. Um, so we're not the only product house uh, who, who work with them, iShares and others do overseas. And collectively they've raised over 300 billion rand just in dividend aristocrat strategies in various uh, global markets. Just, just refreshes on the methodology again sure. for the dividend aristocrats and what dif differentiates that from um, perhaps the Satrix dividend ETF. Sure. So when you look at uh, dividends as an investment strategy, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. There's the forward look and, and the backward view on, on um, how a particular share has done. So uh, the Divi Plus Index, which is an index run by the JSC for instance, tries to um, filter up filter those stocks with the highest forward dividend yield. Okay, um, now um, that, that has its benefits um, in that you potentially could get a high yield, um, but that high yield could be a function of a, of a falling share price um, and is very much uh, value-like in terms of its characteristics. If you look at shares that have paid, maintained and grown their dividend streams through time, we argue that that's more of a quality type strategy because those companies have been consistent in paying their dividends. And that sort of speaks to companies with low levels of debt, discipline management teams, mature sectors, um, and so forth. So when you're looking back at dividends, it's, it's more of a quality metric. When you're looking forward, more of a value metric. So dividend aristocrats globally um, is a backward looking index to say who, who's, who's actually delivered in terms of dividends um, and therefore sort of quality defensive type shares. Mm. So something that appeals to you, Nick? Yeah, I think Gareth touched on to something like uh, spot on there is, is what people, investors in, have learned in the past is sometimes, uh, you know, just because it's got a high dividend yield doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pay a high dividend. Mm. Um, that's exactly right. It could be a reflection of a low share price. Um, and, and the way that, that, that this particular ETF is devised by looking at, uh, I presume, things like strong cash flow, what's happened to the last, uh, the, the sort of history of paying, is probably a much more prudent way of looking at it. And I think, uh, you know, in this environment now where everyone's 
trying to chase yield. We've been so used to getting, you know, zero percent interest rates and very little yield that investors can chase. Um, a product like this, I think, is coming perfectly to the market. Yeah, and, and th there are actually four underlying indices to That's the right. ETF. So you've got the, the Canadian uh, dividend aristocrats, you have the US, you have a European, and you also have a Pan-Asian one. And do you then just group all of that together into this index? That's right. So we, we group it together. Uh, and the weighting we apply to each region depends on that region's weighting in the overall index. So US markets are some 50% of global markets. Therefore, we buy 50% of the fund into the US uh, dividend aristocrats uh, index, which is also the oldest and longest standing dividend aristocrats strategy. You know, it's quite remarkable if I could just speak on, on that market specifically. Uh, I mean, it has shares in it like McDonald's as a, a classic sort of example of what we're trying to do here. McDonald's has paid, maintained, and grown its dividend stream since 1977 or something like that. So, it, you know, it's big next. <laughs> yeah, a lot of burgers mm. being eaten through good times and bad times. Um, and it's just a classic dividend grow. Um, so um, those are the sort of shares that we are, are pinpointing within the index. Mm. Uh, would you be comfortable having half your investments in the United States, just given how other economies are starting to come to the fore, such as the European, Nick? You know, it, it's, it's all about market timing in this game. I mean, look, the, the, a lot of people do think the US market's overvalued, but on the flip side, look at the RAND dollars, what the RAND dollars done. You know, it's, it's probably a prudent time with a RAND at close to 12 for the mm -hmm. dollar. So maybe look at putting some money offshore. So there's both sides. Yes, the US market's expensive, but an opportunity like now with the RAND where it is, it's, it's probably a prudent time to move some money offshore. Uh, how able are you to, to shift your allocations as markets do change, Gareth? No, we, we've kept it pretty static. Um, static according to what that country's weighting is in the broader index. Um, so we didn't want to take country bets within this index. So. Um, Canada, for instance, is a f relatively small market, so it's only 3% of this index, uh, yet there are a lot of dividend-paying stocks uh, uh, in that market. So no, we're not tinkering with company allocations. It's more about the underlying investment thesis um, and how you can sort of access that. And, and I see there are different weighting methodologies for the four underlying indices, so two are equal weighted and two are yield. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's not something that we um, have gone and engineered. It's just very simply, th those were indexes that were already existing within S&P's broader suite mm -hmm. of, of indices. So you may even find that some of those indices, or, or, or I know, in fact, that some of those indices already have products referencing them in other markets. So we didn't change how the index was designed for each region. We just left the index design the same in each region. And then the, the way that we've built it is on the, is on the country uh, allocation basis. So for instance, US, you have to have paid your dividend for 25 years, Europe, 10 years, and so on. Um, yeah. And I see this 0.8% allocation to South Africa. What's included from South Africa in this? Actually, I don't know if uh, South Africa isn't specifically included. There might be a few dual-listed stocks that um, um, trade in the European market, like British American Tobacco, for instance, that's okay. included in the European yeah. uh, um, index, but it's not specifically from South Africa. South Africa does have a strong pedigree when it comes to paying dividends and growing dividends. We, we've got great management teams in our country, generally very well managed uh, 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 balance sheets. So funny enough, back going back to 2014 when we launched our local product, um, S&P were actually you know, pleasingly surprised at just how well our market featured in terms of companies that, mature companies that have this sort of dividend policy, because you, you perhaps wouldn't find that in some of the Eastern markets, some of the other developing markets, um, they don't have that same dividend ethos. Yeah, interesting Nick, um, I picked up that 10 cents also included there. Um, 
something that would be appealing to you as an investor to have that 10 cent dividend coming through? Yeah, definitely. And, and look, and that that I mean, that's as it's gone from strength to strength. I think it's sitting at over still over 500 billion market cap. So getting exposure to the Chinese markets is is only a pleasure. Mm. How would this have compared to, um, say, for instance, your S and P 500 ETF um, performance-wise? So I haven't looked at it like for like because obviously you, the S&P 500 is very regional yeah. it's just the US no, market the US, whereas yeah. this is a this is a world allocation if you look at it compared to the, the world index it has tended S&P global yeah yeah S&P global or the MSCI world for instance it, it has tended to outperform the general index with better risk uh, metrics as well um, so whilst having sort of these quality defensive like companies um, you're still able to generate return that's at least in line with the index, if not if not better than uh, the, the, the broad index, um, and it has weightings. Uh, I mean, you talk about ten cent and tech. It is a bit. It is unusual to see that that particular stock in the index because you would you would think of this th- this tech growth company. So the big U.S. tech stocks aren't in the U.S. dividend aristocrats for obvious reasons. So Facebook, Google, these companies didn't exist 25 years ago. So they haven't built up the sort of dividend stream that they're probably going to going forward. So the companies that end up in the index are Coca-Cola, McDonald's, as I said, Chevron, Johnson & Johnson, these sort of um, companies that dominate market share in their particular um, industries um, and are mature, as I said, mature dividend uh, payers. And it, it does, I mean, it's, it's heavily weighted towards um, con- consumer staple stocks. As you'd expect. So, so, so infrastructure, consumer, yeah, consumer staples, um, stocks where, uh, or industries rather, that are mature and where th- that they're highly cash generative as well. Mm. I, mean, I, I saw today that you're actually listing more um, units in your S&P um, 500 glo- yeah. glo- global index as well. So I mean, yeah. there's obviously been a take-up for that. No, it has. I mean, it, it's been a very popular product, so we're very proud of it. Uh, it's one of our larger ETFs uh, now. Um, the S&P 500, as you know, the actual market there has has run hard over the last uh, 15 months. So too is the RAND, so that's netted off the return uh, to a degree. Um, but it, it's been a wonderful time to be in, in, in U.S. stocks. I, I wasn't privy to some of Nick's sort of contribution earlier as to what he thinks going forward between the different regions and that. But certainly in terms of kind of bottom draw strategies, in terms of holding long-term U.S. stock exposure, uh, you really can't beat it. Uh, I mean, John Bogle, kind of our go-to guy on advice on indexing, you know, it's his favorite strategy in terms of holding it for the long term and not trying to be too smart about stock picking within that particular market. Mm. So uh, the, uh, the, S- the S&P, I think, gained, what, 19% last year? Yes. Was so I mean, y- your ETF presumably would have delivered much the same in dollar terms? In dollar terms, it would have given you exactly the same, less costs, but then you would have had the RAND um, strengthening against the dollar throughout the year. Um, so, um, I mean, even right up until December, you, you had the RAND weekend again, if you recall, during November, and then suddenly strengthened all the way towards uh, towards your end. So that dollar-rand um, relationship um, comes through directly in terms of the rand price of the of the ETF. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen growing demand, particularly with the rand as strong as it is at the moment, for clients to go offshore and, uh, and take, take I cash? Think, I think definitely. And I, and I think you need to remember that most, um, I mean, for the average person on the street now, the, ex- the exchange controls don't really exist. You know, you can take out 10 million rand per person. You know, it, it, it's available that options there for everyone and it's a much more of a global marketplace i think people the sort of financial literacy to the average person in south africa now they, they, they actually understand about 
having exposure to offshore, having allocation offshore, etc. And I think it should be part of your of your investment uh, sort of planning for the year. Um, and we've seen a big uptake in it, yeah, definitely. And, and I think with um, I mean, every time you turn on the, you know, the local newspaper, there's, there's something about the S&P, a new high. I mean, the, while we sat here now, Dow Jones is on a new high again, and the NASDAQ had a new high again today. So I think it's been a very successful, and, and as Gareth was saying, I mean, that product with the, with the RAND doing what it did and the S&P doing what it did was a great product for mm. investors. I mean, I think and it should be part of your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of offshore diversification, I mean, the one simple message that we give clients, Stephen, is if, you know, you and I both work for corporate, so we've got a pension that, we, that we're busy you contributing to. Um, and you know that pen pension is limited in terms of what offshore exposure it's allowed to take. So it's limited to 25% offshore. Yes, the fund manager who's managing that pension can buy rand hedge stocks, but it's not truly offshore um, exposure. So your pension fund's only 25% offshore. The rest of your life is in South Africa. So the present value of your earnings is in South Africa. Your house is in South Africa. All of your other wealth is in rands. So when it comes to discretionary savings, um, uh, to plow straight back into South African stocks, yes, they may do very nicely, particularly this year with change in sentiments and so forth. But from a pure diversification perspective, to have the sort of discretionary offshore allocation uh, makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. what, what, what sort of costs are, are involved with, with the new ETF? So our management fee is 35 basis points, um, but there's some underlying costs that have to be added on to that. So we're expecting a total expense ratio of about 60. Uh, basis points, which is pretty much in line with these global dividend aristocrat strategies uh, globally. Sound reasonable? Yes, it does. <laughs> but you are speaking to a stockbroker, so we're here. James, we have to <laughs> Thanks very much Thanks for coming through. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks again to Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers, Gareth Stobie from Corsairs for their insights. Many thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.